Chapter 11 of The Falcon on the Baltic. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Chapter 11 The Little Belt and Viele Fjord. On the following morning, July 25th, the climate had again changed. Up till now, we had experienced in the Baltic rapid alternations of hot, cloudless summer and blustering wintry weather. But this day, an entirely new climate visited us, which may be compared to that of Plymouth in autumn. The glass had fallen nearly half an inch in the night, and Wright, who had marveled at its rapid movement since we had been on these seas, dryly remarked that I should have brought two aneroids with me as one was likely to wear out if it was left to do all this work by itself. The sky was overcast and threatening wind, and the rain fell steadily. But so far it was almost calm, a very light air creeping up occasionally from the southwest. Distant thunder could be heard rolling over the hills on the mainland. As Sonderborg was but six miles distant, I thought we could reach it before the storm broke. The anchor was accordingly weighed after breakfast. It was a most ominous-looking morning, but nothing much came of it. We tacked slowly out of Horup Haven and had reached the mouth of Owl's Ford when the wind suddenly shifted to the northeast, and a violent squall of rain and wind, as usual, heralded the change. But we had not far to go, and a few more tacks brought us within the sheltered sound. We left alongside the quay of Sonderborg, lowered our drenched sails, and made fast. So very narrow is the sound at this point that a large vessel cannot come to an anchor, having no room to swing, but the water is deep up to either shore. The current sets through the strait with such velocity that it has never been known to freeze. The chief street of Sonderborg borders the quay, and at one end of it rises the old Schloss of the Dukes of Ostenborg, a somewhat imposing edifice, but ugly, as are most of the ducal castles of Schleswig-Holstein. A bridge of boats here crosses the river, and on the opposite shore rise the famous heights of Dybol. With the exception of the castle, few buildings in Sonderborg have an antique appearance, for this town was almost completely destroyed by the Prussians during the bombardment of Dybol, and has, for the most part, been rebuilt quite recently. It now contains about 6,000 inhabitants, and, if one may judge from the number of vessels that lie along its quays, a considerable trade must be carried on here. It has recently become one of the favorite watering places in these parts, and large hotels for the accommodation of visitors have been built in the southern suburbs of the town. Shortly after we entered the harbor, this interesting climate changed yet once more, this time to that of the traditional English April, by which I mean that perhaps mythical April described by the ancients as forming a portion of the spring, and not of the winter as been the case in recent years. The sun shone brightly, the birds sang merrily, and now and again a brief shower would pass overhead, leaving the dripping woods more beautiful than ever. And now I had to make that pilgrimage which is obligatory on all who visit Sonderborg. I crossed the bridge of boats to the mainland, and, after ascending a broad, steep road for about half an hour, reached the summit of Dybolgjörg, that memorable hillside which the Danes defended so valiantly for two months in 1864, 
and whose battered entrenchments were at last stormed by the overwhelming forces of the Prussians. It is not within my province to chronicle that plucky but hopeless defense, but of the Diebolberg itself it may be said that it would be impossible to conceive a more majestic scene for a vital struggle between two nations. The Diebolberg is a dome-shaped hill, one of the highest of the peninsula of Sundavit. Its summit commands a very extensive and magnificent view. From here the armies could overlook half the beautiful country for which they were fighting, a vast panorama of blue water and undulating green land, interlocked with each other, as it were, by many an irregular promontory and isthmus, an intricate winding gulf and sound. To the north and east are Alsound, the long fjord of Ostenborg, and Alls Island with its forest-clad hills. To the west and south stretches the great gulf of Flensborg, with its countless capes and bays, and to the north, across the fertile downs of Sundavit, and to the southeast are obtained glimpses of the open Baltic. On the top of this green hill, where the sea winds wave the long grass and the bright-hued northern flowers that are growing so rankly over the graves of warriors, rises a lonely monument, an admirable work of art, and singularly in harmony with its surroundings. This is a lofty obelisk in the Gothic style, not unlike the Albert Monument in appearance, which commemorates the Prussian victory. The bas-reliefs around the base illustrate incidents of the siege, and so careful have the conquerors been not to hurt the feelings of the vanquished, that it would be difficult for anyone to discover from the carvings and inscriptions what had been the issue of the contest. Here, the individual gallant deeds of the Danes are pictured side by side with those of their German foemen. The monument is dedicated to the fallen, but to the fallen of both nations, and, unlike most erections of the kind, this is no monument of self-glorification, but of proud respect for the valor of both armies. It can arouse no sentiment of animosity in the breast of any spectator, but a feeling that here fought two generous enemies well worthy of each other. Near it are the ruins of the Danish entrenchments and a cemetery where stand many simple gravestones bearing such inscriptions as, Here lie one hundred brave Danes, here lie fifty brave Prussians, here lie many Prussians and Danish soldiers. Such are the relics of the wars that have been, but here also are to be seen extensive preparations for possible wars to come. Defensive works of great strength have been raised on these heights, and also round Sonderborg, which are supposed to have made this important position and the Owl Sound unapproachable to the army or fleet of an enemy. Even in these days of peace, there was a martial air about the old battlefield. I met here many more soldiers than civilians. The engineers were working on the new fortifications, and ever and anon I heard in one direction or another the sound of bugle call or military music. I returned to Sonderborg and visited the old castle which was built in the 13th century. It has been converted into a barrack, and now contains a considerable Prussian garrison. The chapel and the adjoining vault are, alone, open to the public. In the latter are piled up a large number of ancient and sumptuous coffins containing the remains of members of the Ostenborg family. A lugubrious old man who acted as Cicerone insisted, despite my repeated assertions that I did not understand a word of German, 
on telling me who all these dead grandees were, when they had lived, and what their achievements had been. In the evening, a German gentleman, who spoke English well, called on me. He told me that he too was a skipper and owner of a yacht, that he had sailed here from Lübeck, and intended to follow the coast as far as Assens. I went with him to inspect his vessel, which was lying above the pontoon bridge. She was a ten-tonner, and had a large open well in which was a small steam engine. When he encountered a calm, he got up steam, and could make about two knots an hour. His wife, two children, and two sailors were on board with him, so it can be imagined that they were too much crowded up to enjoy much comfort. The steam engine, too, must have got terribly in the way, and created plenty of dirt. He had a steel lifeboat, which he had constructed himself as a dinghy. This somewhat eccentric craft was the only native yacht I met cruising in the Baltic. These people do not deserve to own such a splendid cruising ground. There was no wind at all on the following morning, until nine o'clock, when, a southerly breeze arising, we pushed off from the quay, passed through the pontoon bridge, the toll for opening which to a vessel is one mark, and sailed up the Owl Sound. This strait, which divides the island of Alsen from the mainland, is twelve miles long, and its extreme breadth in its northern part is two miles. The scenery on either side of us was charming, as it always is on this coast. Verdant slopes came down to the edge of the clear blue water, contrasting with the darker color of abrupt pine-clad hills, and here and there stood a beautifully situated country seat with a noble park around it, or a snug little village with its rough wooden jetty and a group of fishing boats. The sound broadened as we advanced, but about a league above Sonderborg there is a spot where the land, jutting out on either side, once more contracts the channel. Here, on the western shore, is an extensive beechwood, and on the eastern, the village of Arukiel. It was at this point that the Prussians forced the passage of the Sound in 1864, and we perceived, standing by the seaside, a Gothic monument resembling that of Dibol, which commemorates this event. Shortly after passing this, we opened out Augustenborg Fjord, which looked so beautiful that I was almost tempted to ascend it. After sailing another seven miles, we came out of the Sound, and were once more in the open waters of the Little Belt, which here attains its greatest breadth of sixteen miles. Across it, on our right, we could see the blue hills of the distant island of Fian, and before us lay the extensive bay into which opens the fjords of Appenraid and Gienner. As the weather still looked fine, I decided not to put into any of the nearer ports, but to cross the bay to its northern point, Cape Hulk, and thence, following the coast, reach the sheltered sound inside Arau Island before night. The gentle southwest wind carried us slowly before it, till we were in the middle of the bay and off the wooded island of Barso. Wright was on deck steering, while I was having a nap below. "'There are breakers ahead, sir,' I heard him call out. I glanced at the chart. "'Nonsense, right? There are fourteen fathoms about here, and there are no shoals to pick us up between this and the shore.' "'There are breakers ahead, though, sir, and if there is no shallow water, it must be a squall coming down on us.' I hurried on deck and stood by the halyards. A line of foam, dazzlingly white under the bright sunshine, and therefore giving us the impression of more commotion than really existed, 
was crossing the smooth water. It soon reached us, and we were relieved to find ourselves not as we had expected in the midst of a violent northwest squall, which would have been an awkward customer to tackle in this open water, but of a fresh and steady east wind which enabled us to hold our course close-hauled on the starboard tack. The little belt, separating as it does the territories of Germany and Denmark, is closely watched by the preventive services of either nation, and smuggling craft must find it difficult to avoid the cruisers. The captain of a Prussian revenue cutter that was hove to to windward of us evidently thought the falcon a suspicious-looking vessel, for he let draw his foresail, bore down on us, and turned close round our stern. He perceived our blue ensign and appeared satisfied, for he waved his cap to us, wished us a good journey, and then sailed back to his post of observation. Half an hour afterwards, a Danish revenue cutter went through exactly the same performance with us. We passed Hulk Head and saw before us the little island of Aral, which is about two miles long and is flat and desolate in appearance. At 6 p.m. we entered the narrow sound which divides the island from the mainland. There is a harbor at Aral and one on the Schleswig shore. As the latter, which is called Aralsund, looked the most cheerful of the two, we stood in between its piers and lowered our sails. This port can only be used by very small craft. The entrance is but 37 feet wide, and as the piers take a sharp turn to the northward, it is an exceedingly inconvenient place to get into. Once within, one is in a snug little harbor capable of accommodating half a dozen fishing boats at the outside. We secured the yacht to the wooden quay and then looked round us. On the shore, three houses only were to be seen, and behind these was a grove of beech trees. Of the houses, one was a small tavern, one a coast guard station, and the third an imposing-looking restaurant or refreshment room, whose presence in such a lonely spot somewhat puzzled me. I afterwards discovered that the passenger steamer which plies between Handerslev and Ossens calls here twice a day, and that the citizens of the former inland town are fond of making excursions to this little seaside place to avail themselves of the excellent bathing it affords. We had purchased some fish from a smack that was in the port, and were doing justice to them at dinner, when I heard a heavy body bump against our sides. I looked out, and found that this was the Lubeck yacht which had followed us from Sonderborg, and was now making fast alongside. While lying in most of the Baltic ports, vessels are not allowed to have fires or lights on board, the many wooden houses and stacks of timber making this precaution necessary. We had disregarded this troublesome prohibition on more than one occasion, but now we cooked our dinner and lit our lamps with an easy conscience, for our pilot book informed us that there is no rule of the sort in Erosund, and it would indeed have been superfluous in a town of three houses. I only visited one of these houses, and that naturally was the tavern. We had run short of potatoes, and I went there in hopes of purchasing some. I was received by a nice-looking old woman who knew no English. I tried to recall the German word for potato, but could not do so. All I remembered about it was that it sounded something like the name of the evil one. I did not like, therefore, to experimentalize on the language, in case I might shock the old lady with unconscious profanity. Madam, I said in English, I want potatoes, but I am English and speak no German. 
neither do we sir we are danes a voice behind me said proudly in the purest anglo-saxon i turned around and perceived the host who had just come in at the door a tall handsome old man but with dim eyes that were evidently almost blind what is it that i can have the pleasure of doing for you sir he continued i told him my wants and he sent his wife off for a sack of potatoes this was a very pleasant old chap he was dignified and courteous and to my surprise he spoke our language as an educated englishman would his accent and vocabulary were not such as foreign seamen pick up in british forecastles and whopping lodging-houses he seemed pleased to meet an Englishman, so I called for beer and had a long yarn with him as he sat with closed eyes in his chair and smoked his long pipe. His good wife, they were an affectionate couple and always addressed each other as fodder and mutter, could not understand our conversation, but her honest face beamed with satisfaction when she perceived how this recalling of olden times was brightening up her old man. He told me that he was nearly ninety, and that he had not had occasion to speak English for nearly half a century. He had been a sea captain, and had evidently passed much of his life in the tropical Atlantic, for he seemed very familiar with the Brazils and the west coast of Africa. I heard afterwards that there was some mystery about the old fellow, and that strange rumors were afloat concerning his past. He was, possibly, a retired buccaneer, slaver, or other sea adventurer of the sort. I stayed two days in Erlesund, the first because the weather was stormy, and the second because I was lazy and bethought myself to take a trip on a steamer for a change. On the night of our arrival, the wind was howling again in a wintry fashion, and on the following morning it was blowing half a gale from the northwest, so the two yachts shirked the sea and stayed in port. Almost a mile to the northward of Erlesund, Haderslev Fjord opens on to the little belt. This fjord is about nine miles in length. It is narrow and winding, and at the head of it lies the town of the same name, which has a considerable shipping trade. The chart showed me that I could safely venture to Haderslev in the dinghy, as the wind was offshore and the sea would be quite smooth on this side of the belt. I therefore left right in charge of the yacht, set the balance lug in the boat, and sailed away. I entered the mouth of the fjord and was tacking up the first reach when the steamer from Ossens overtook me, crowded with jovial excursionists and having a brass band on board that did its duty well, and never ceased playing throughout the voyage. The skipper hailed me, threw me a rope's end, and I was towed all the way to Haderslev, having nothing to do but sit at luxurious ease in the dinghy stern smoking my pipe and admiring the scenery the banks of the fjord were of course well timbered and pleasing in describing one of these fjords one describes all of them though as i have said before there is no monotony in their loveliness only in the attempt at reproducing them in words on reaching haderslev the captain of the steamer a jolly north german volunteered to show me round this is a very old town with lofty and picturesque houses. Extensive barracks are now being constructed for the accommodation of the Prussian garrison. The Germans evidently maintained a great number of troops in these two conquered provinces, not that the natives, who are a long-headed race, are likely to attempt such a hopeless piece of madness as a rebellion against their powerful masters, 
even should the outbreak of a war between Germany and some other great power appear to afford an opportunity. In Holstein, there is, of course, little or no ill-feeling toward the Germans, as the bulk of the population is of German blood and was ever disaffected toward Denmark. In quite two-thirds of Schleswig, again, the people seem to have reconciled themselves to the new regime and have come to the conclusion that they are better off as citizens of a great nation like Germany than of a poor little Denmark, now so helpless and of so small account in the affairs of Europe. But here, in the extreme north of Schleswig, it is another matter. Here the people are Danes to the backbone, detest the Germans, and still entertain some hope that Germany will, one day, be compelled to restore this country to Denmark. In the town like Haderslev, which is only a few miles from the frontier, and whose inhabitants have, therefore, much commerce with their neighbors in more fortunate Jutland, it is patent, even to the passing stranger, that no love is lost between the two races. This was, indeed, soon brought before my notice. In the chief streets there are two cafés opposite each other, which are frequented by men of position in town. At one of these cafés the captain and I lunched. On looking around at the other tables, I saw several Prussian officers, burly merchants of the true North German type, refreshing themselves in the intervals of business, and at one table was a group of Protestant parsons, also smoking and drinking beer, and who, I was told, had been attending a synod which was being held in Haderslev. By the way, how is it that in most countries a haphazard group of clergymen is almost sure to contain a noticeable proportion of sour-looking, or foolish, or physically weak, or otherwise disagreeable types, while, on the contrary, in Denmark or North Germany, the clergy seems to be above the average of their countrymen in robustness, intellectuality of features, and prepossessing appearance generally. Now, I notice that everyone present, were he soldier, parson, merchant, or waiter, was speaking high German, and that none but German papers were lying on the little marble tables. How was this? I said to my friend the captain. I thought the people spoke Danish in this part of the country. He laughed and replied, So they do, but we happen to be sitting in the best German cafe of Haderslev. Just over the way you can see the best Danish cafe. If you go in there, you'll hear nothing but Danish spoken round you, and see none but Danish papers. I did not take you in there, because I am a German, and they would scowl at me, and perhaps make themselves objectionable. Not only is it thus with the cafes, but with the churches, and with the places of public amusement. The two races have their own, and keep entirely apart. The steamer that runs to Aussens, of which my friend was skipper, belongs to a German company. Some Danish merchants have determined to start an opposition boat. Then there will be none but German passengers on one steamer and none but Danes on the other. They do, indeed, cordially detest each other. The Germans I met in this part of Schleswig had all sorts of bad things to say about the Danish character. So, too, had the Danes on the contemptible features of the Teuton nature. I have no doubt that my friends spoke from conviction, but the charges they made against each other were often grotesquely false, and so far as my limited experience goes, they were all gross slanderers and jolly good fellows on either side. The captain towed me back to Arlesund, and before going on to Aussens, 
he persuaded me not to sail on the following morning, but to take a voyage with him. Accordingly, when his boat came alongside the quay at midday, July 28th, I got on board and we steamed between the isles of Rao and Bago, across the little belt to Ossens on the island of Fien. There was again a large party of excursionists on board, mostly robust businessmen from Hatterslev, with a capacity for food, beer, and tobacco that was refreshing to behold in this dyspeptic age. A lunch was served on the way, consisting of a cold fried fish, Russian sardines, cold pork sausages, black bread and mutton sandwiches, kummel, and Danish akavit. The dwellers by the Baltic have clearly not yet lost their gastric juices. The journey was uneventful, save that some Danish yeomen got drunk, sang songs which I could not understand, but which were evidently not complimentary to the Germans if they were not absolutely seditious, and at last had to be repressed. We reached Ossens, and for the first time I set foot on Danish soil. There was nothing here to indicate that we had crossed from one country to another, save the difference in the uniforms of the soldiers and customs house officers, and the fact of the latter being somewhat more officious than the same class in Germany. Not that they troubled me, for I had no luggage, but they thoroughly rummaged the boxes, baskets, and bags of my fellow travelers. There was little to see in this clean seaport, save the cemetery on the hillside, which commands a beautiful view, and where are monuments to the Danish troops who fell in 1864. In the evening, the steamer took me back to Arosund, and then, sitting in the Falcon's cabin, I proceeded to consult pilot books, charts, and baydeckers as to whither I should sail on the morrow. But I found that in going up the little belt, I should have on either side of me so many good ports and pleasant places that I decided to leave my next night's destination to chance, or rather to the pleasure of the inconstant Baltic breezes. On the morning of July the 29th, the weather, as Wright remarked, could not have been better had it been made for us. A warm sun was shining, and a fresh southeast wind was curling the waters of the little belt. This was, I think, the pleasantest day's sail we had had on this voyage. We got under way at 6 a.m., and after traveling about 52 English miles through ever-varying scenery, composed of extensive bays, narrow sounds, islands, and fjords, we reached Viele at three in the afternoon. We sailed out of Aral Sound, across the shoals that lie to the north of it, the feeding ground of many birds, by the flat, uninhabited island of Linderum, into the Little Belt, which is here nine miles broad, but is much contracted in places by the promontories that project from either shore. Then we came to the little island of Bronso, well wooded, and having a fishing haven on its southern side. On the mainland, opposite to this, we opened out into the Bay of Helsminde, which forms the frontier between Jutland and Schleswig. So, from here we had Danish land on either side of us, and were leaving astern in the territories of the Kaiser. Next, we entered the rougher waters of the Bredning, where the belt broadens to ten miles, and now, ahead of us, rose ranges of steep wooded hills, loftier than any we had yet seen in the Baltic, through which no opening was visible, so that we appeared to be in a great landlocked bay. But, steering our course, we came to Stenderup Point, at the farther end of the Brednig, 
and before us there opened out a narrow strait like the entrance to a fjord but through which all the waters of the belt were pouring out this is known as the narrows of the little belt a winding channel more than ten miles in length and in places not half a mile in width formed by the convergence towards each other of fian and jutland through these narrows the current runs with great velocity to the northward often causing dangerous races my pilot book told me that the current here is indeed stronger than on any of the danish seas and that when the wind is in the northeast the sea is so high short and irregular that even the well-protected anchorage off fredericia is unsafe for vessels the water is deep in the narrows attaining forty fathoms in one spot the southern entrance to the narrows is divided into two branches by the island of feno we went up the smaller channel on the Fayan side, which is called Oane's Sound, and here we passed scenery more charming than any we saw on this voyage. On our left was Faino Island, two miles long, high, and clothed with magnificent beech trees, save in places where the wood was cloven by smooth, sloping lawns. A lovely island indeed, a sort of place one would like to own in the Monte Cristo fashion, and convert into a splendid summer yachting box on the fan side the land was steep and rugged but also well wooded with beech and pine while the strip of shore beneath was not a desert of pebbles or of mud left bare and hideous at low water as on the coasts of our tidal seas but a rich pasture crowded with cattle at the end of the sound on a steep peninsula of fian we saw a country seat which drew from both of us exclamations of astonished admiration a light fairy-like chalet nestling among masses of brilliant flowers stood on the heights and the well-timbered slopes that descended from it to the water's edge had been converted into beautiful pleasure grounds with open glades gardens drives winding paths and summer houses this i learnt afterwards was the manor house and park of hinsgeval blind or far too perfect for this world must be the man who does not break the tenth commandment when on a fresh danish summer's day such as this was with the song of innumerable birds filling those pleasant groves he gazes at this paradise i came to the conclusion that i would have no objection to passing the rest of my days here if anyone presented me with this manner and a suitable income i had intended to put into some port within the narrows for the night but i was unwilling to waste this fresh and favorable breeze so pushed on Faino Island passed, and we saw before us the broad mouth of Colding Fjord opening into the Narrows. Leaving it to port, we doubled Gall's Point and entered the narrowest reach of the Straits, which here runs in a southeasterly direction, so that we found the wind and current opposed and had to tack through a confused sea which did not curl in waves, but resembled a commotion at the bottom of a lock when the water is being let in. We had only three miles of this bubble and the strong stream soon carried us past the picturesque and ancient town of Middlefart into the last reach of the narrows where the wind was fair again and the water smooth then we sailed close under the dismantled fortress and the decayed old city of fredericia and were out in broad water once more the belt widened out rapidly into the open katagat and ahead of us to the northeast no land was visible we followed the coast of Jutland to Casseradle Point. The wind freshened and came down on us in stiffy squalls from the defiles above Bering Bay, 
raising a somewhat choppy sea. But the wind was on our beam, and we reached along fast, at one o'clock rounding the beacon which marks the limit of the extensive shoals off Casserode, and opening out the broad entrance of Viele Fjord. This deep gulf is reputed to contain some of the fairest scenery in all Denmark. The distance from Casserode Point to the town of Viele at the head of the fjord is sixteen English miles, and the wind, being now right aft, we accomplished this in two hours, getting alongside the quay at 3 p.m. The fjord presented a succession of lovely landscapes. The steep wooded hills were higher than they generally are in Denmark, and were cloven by deep valleys, while pine-clad promontories jutted out from either shore. As is the case on most of the Danish fjords, a rank vegetation here covers the bottom of the sea, and where the water is shallower, the heads of the long weeds float on the surface and smooth the troubled waters much more effectively than oil can. The bay opposite the town, which forms the termination of the fjord, a piece of water two miles long and one broad, is entirely overgrown by these weeds. As we approached it, running before the wind over a tumbling sea, we saw before us a line of breakers stretching right across the bay, exactly as if a shoal had been there, but which was caused by the waves dashing against the edge of the weed-choked water, and beyond the breakers was a dark green expanse, rising and falling sluggishly in smooth undulations. Through this strange marine growth a narrow channel, half a league in length, had been dredged, by which vessels of not more than ten feet draft can reach the town quays. End of chapter 11